Earth where all things are possible. That is some group of people, thousands. Described as a demon. I hate you, naturally. No, 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 not God bless America. God damn America, that's in the Bible. Welcome to Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. I'm your host, Daniel White Hodge. Well, welcome back to Profane Faith. I'm your host, your boy, Daniel White Hodge here. You know, um... Man, in this episode, we're going to be going in on some some deep stuff. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm going to be really curious to hear what your thoughts are on this, and particularly in, in regards to um, colonialism, evangelicalism, and and white racism. Um, my guest today and on this show today, tonight, whenever you whenever you listen to this, um, is Brandy Miller. And I first met Brandy Miller through the organization CCDA, Christian Community Development Association, um, a few years back at one of their national conferences. And uh, she attended a workshop of mine. And even then, just her questions, her inquiry, uh, was just it just caught my eye. It just caught my attention, and I was like. Who's his sister? Found her on Twitter, and ever since I have been just blown away by her theological inquiry um, into just where we're at, where we find ourselves in this current socio-political era. Um, I think what I like most about Brandy is that she gets right to it. She is sincere. Uh, she thinks through. Um, she's thought. She's well-read, and she, the way she parses theological biblical uh story and narrative is really really good <laughs> just to, you know it's just really solid you're gonna you're gonna hear that here in in uh, in a few minutes um you know when we get to that um a couple of prefaces as we you know venture into this i think one um every well two things really um since i got tenure at the current university i'm at i have definitely found and gained a new sense of boldness. I think uh, that typically happens with a lot of folks who get tenure. You know, it's like you know that the the uh, the mileage is is um is 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 completed at least on one end of the journey. The the, the journey's not over by by no means by no stretch of the means. But uh, you know, hopping through hoops and you know, as a, as a black man in, in higher education, you hope that you don't have to hop through too many hoops. Now, now, we all know that that's not necessarily the case. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. That's if you're listening to this podcast, uh, you know, hopefully maybe maybe a few episodes from now, I'll be talking about what what happens. But for now, um, you know, I'm moving forward. And the second part to that is that after the election of 45 in the election cycle of 2016, I have, as people say, I have lost all the F's I'm going to give, right? I want to keep this, you know, PG uh, and whatnot. Um, but I have, have become unhinged on a lot of different things in regards to faith, theological matters, and hence the genesis of this whole podcast. And so for me, I don't like to, I'm not going to mince words. You know, I think so much of what we do, particularly in Christian environments, other faith settings, you guys can chime in, comment, all that good stuff. But in Christian settings, particularly in evangelical outreach organizations, everything defers to whiteness. 
everything defers to white supremacy. So even when you're a person of color within those organizations, you still have to defer to whiteness. And it's quite honestly, it's just irritating. And I think once we've kind of hit the apex of what is Trump, which is really the residue of the via the, the, the nefarious and just nasty racism that is within evangelical white evangelical Christianity, especially uh, over the last 67 years. Now to do a history lesson, it's been more than that, but particularly the way laws have been placed, the way um, the way black bodies have been treated, black and brown bodies have been treated has been troubling <laughs> to say the very least. So with 45 getting elected and all the intersections of gender, sexual orientation, um, race, ethnicity, uh, immigration status, right? All of those things come to a head. And I think it's important we begin to not just have those conversations, but really push forward. So I have become unhinged and not been caught up with a sense of trying to preserve whiteness, white supremacy or white fragility, and that's what I've appreciated about Brandy. And she has really been able to bring that and bring that sense of inquiry and critical awareness uh, to not just uh, just her audience with Twitter, but also the organization that she is a part of. Um, and uh, this was a great conversation with the great Brandy Miller. So check it out. I am here with Brandy Miller here on Profane Faith. Brandy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, so good to be here. Thank you very much. Um, this is great. I mean, I know we tried a first round when I had you out uh, in Chicago back in April of 2017. Um, and I know you came down, you you were talking to my Black Lives Matter course, and that was amazing. Um, I had I had my doctoral classes that they were blown away um, by just your insight and all your great stuff on colonialism and whiteness. Um, I, man, there's so much happening right now. I'd love to just jump right in. Can you tell us a little bit about What's been your faith journey? What has brought you to this place that you're at theologically, religiously, spiritually? Uh, and of course, what you do for a living right now. Sure. Uh, I'll start with the, what I'm doing and then how I got there. Um, so currently I'm a campus minister at the University of Oregon uh, in Oregon. Yes, it's uh, <laughs> as rural feeling and as white as it seems. Um, but yeah, I spend my time developing who I believe are going to be phenomenal church leaders okay. um, to go out and be the hope for Christianity, I think. Yeah. I get to develop students who are conscious and caring and compassionate and kind, and it's a great way to spend my time. Uh, but I always joke around in my own faith journey that I ain't always been saved and I ain't always been woke. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. And yeah, and so I grew up uh, in small rural white spaces in Oregon. Um, in a white family. Mm -hmm. And so my experience with faith didn't actually start till I was in middle school where I was fully indoctrinated into moralistic, therapeutic, evangelical deism. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, and so I thought that faith was just about going somewhere else when you died, that the world that we live in doesn't matter. And that if you can care for the soul, then everything else in the world will get better. Uh, what I didn't realize for a long time, however, was that that narrative doesn't actually exist in the Bible in any way. But one thing <laughs> I really do appreciate about my uh, really conservative, particularly Baptist upbringing is it taught me a high value for scripture, even if it didn't teach me how to read it well. Okay. And so I came into college with a profound love for the scriptures, but a completely anemic way of reading it. 
And so it was in learning how to read scripture through friends and through community that I started to recognize that the narrative of scripture was much bigger than just saving one's soul, but actually about holistic discipleship Mm. and the whole body mattering to God. And so it was in that that I realized that my life trajectory couldn't just be about saving people's souls because that's an incomplete gospel, but rather about seeing people's whole lives transformed and the spaces that we exist being transformed. And that included for me figuring out how systems play a part in people's oppression or inability to experience the image of God in them more fully. Wow. Wow. And so, yeah, man, that's, that's, now that's amazing. Cause I remember you talking about, I mean, I think you even tweeted on that and, and whatnot about, you know, you said, you know, you wasn't always woke and in, in, in like in 2008, didn't you say you, uh, <laughs> oh, are you referring to me voting for um, a ticket that had Sarah Palin on it? Yes, sir, yes, I did do that. Yeah, yeah. What, what, uh, what went into that? I'm curious because it's day and night. And those of you who are listening, you, you'll see what I'm saying. But so it's day and night of where you're at now. Yeah, well, I wrote like one particular image sticks out to me, which is that when I was in late high school, I remember Barack Obama doing some things like getting ready to be campaigning. Mm-hmm. And my the newspaper in my hometown published a front page article saying that Obama was the Antichrist. Um, <laughs> so right. it wasn't so it wasn't just that my spiritual community thought that being Republican meant being Christian, therefore you voted Republican. Uh-huh. It was also that the city politics that were entrenched in faith were doing the same thing. So I actually had no image of Jesus that was outside of a conservative Christian context or like a Josh McDowell, John Piper. <laughs> strobel kind of experience like i had only had those types of inputs and so i didn't know that there was another way to be faithful to be christian um to know god Hmm. um, until i started engaging with people who weren't like the people who i had learned faith from so yeah yeah Yeah. well and i know that's i mean i know that's definitely i mean i i I see students like that you know they come through (laughs) my little school and they have this set worldview on what sin is and how we should look at it. I mean, because I often think some, a lot of times sin gets racialized um, in spaces, especially in private Christian schools. Um, can you talk a little? Can you talk a little bit then about? I mean, I know you shared some of the kind of the major things. What are some of the things along the way? I mean, did you? What were you inspired by? Were there books? Were there speakers? Did you show up to like a conference and then like the lights were like aha? You know, did you? You know, I mean, and, and again, I know everybody's different, so that, that's why I'm asking. Yeah, so there were a couple of main things. One was that my Bible study leader um, was is part of an, a family of undocumented immigrants. Mm, all and right. so when I entered into her small group, I had never thought about immigration in any way beyond people should just try to get here legally. People should do the right, you know, like the right thing as I had thought it would be. Um, yeah. But I had never, I had never had friends who had been impacted by things like immigration or could articulate their experience of racism in a profound way. Um, and I wish I could say that I received that really quickly, that I was able to say, oh, yeah, your experience matters and the scriptures back up your experience. But like a lot of my students and a lot of the people you probably work with, I was pretty resistant to the idea that God had anything to do with what I considered the political world, which really is just the a world where we are fully embodied, right? Because our bodies matter. Um, mm. And so it was being with her and having her share her experience with me while simultaneously teaching me how to read scripture that gave me a framework to understand things differently. But I remember saying stuff to her that was so problematic. Like people <laughs> of color get what they deserve. They should just pull themselves up by the bootstraps. Wow. Like you all's gospel is so liberal that you've lost the gospel itself in the midst of it. Like that was the stuff I was saying um, when I was first entering into a more responsible faith journey. <laughs> yeah. And, 
And it was through, um, I remember one day in particular, I was sitting, uh, reading the book of Exodus cause I had like more deeply fallen in love with scripture. Mm-hmm. I got to, like, I got two chapters in, you know, and like, Jesus going to wake you up through <laughs> Exodus if you're going to read it. Right. And, uh, there was that line where it says like that God heard the cry of the Israelites. He saw that their oppression was great and God knowing that that had happened and hearing their cry caused God to respond on behalf of an ethnic group of people that was being oppressed. Mm. And the rest of scripture right, narrates the story of God de- helping this people who have been ethnically oppressed both become free and then try to help them to not become the empire that they were freed from. Hmm. And I felt like the thing that God said to me is like, Brandy, if you want to be a part of what I'm about, then you have to care about the things that I do. And this is it. Um, wow. So that that marked like a major transformation for me where I had to readjust not only my view of scripture and of Jesus, but my view of myself and my friends. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Um, wow. So in taking it from that and coming into, we'll just fast forward. I mean, I know a lot of stuff happened and, you know, between all these years, I mean, you got Mike Brown, you got Trayvon yeah. Martin. Um, and talk a little bit then about just where you were. Let me, let me go to Mike Brown. Cause I know just some of the guests I've had on just have talked a lot about Mike Brown and, mm-hmm. and just that, that being kind of ground zero for black lives matter getting going. I mean, so where I mean, and it seems to be like one of those those events, like, you know, you people can remember all oh, where I was at. Like, I remember where I was at when I found t- how Tupac died and stuff. You know yeah. what I'm saying? So yeah. <laughs> where were you at? What was going on for you when the news hit? And then, the, of course, the ensuing videos hit uh, when when Mike Brown came out and the whole thing in Ferguson. Yeah. So I, I am a person who remembers where I was when Michael Brown was killed. <laughs> I um, I had just moved from Portland, which is already a predominantly white city, to Eugene, Oregon, which is about 89% white. And in that move, um, I experienced some pretty significant racial trauma just in being in such a homogenous space, um, Mm -hmm. having been engaging with my own blackness in a more more intentional and more radicalized way for several years. Um, And so I entered into the city, um, and that would have been July 26th of that same year. And so on August 9th, Michael Brown was killed. And so not only was I living in this new space that was completely entrenched in whiteness, but I was seeing the ways that people were making excuses for why it was okay that a black man's body was lying in the street for four hours and why he was dead. Yeah. Um, And I think it was the time that I was convinced finally that it wasn't that white people weren't interested in... Like in, It wasn't just that white people wanted things to be factual or correct or political. It was that... It was, something about, it was something different. It was about race. It was about Michael Brown's body being black. It was about mm. it was about not wanting to believe the stories of black people, even seeing in front of us evidence that black bodies didn't matter. Um, and so I think I started to see in my own city the ways that my body didn't matter to people around me. Um, and right, there's two je- there's two spectrum ends. There's the truck that drives around that says Trump do the white thing. There's like the neo Nazi. I know where they stand in Eugene kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. But then there's the other side, which is like this white neoliberalism that <laughs> that when I wear a Black Lives Matter shirt says, hey, I like your shirt, but doesn't actually fight for my liberation. Yeah. Um, and so I found myself in that time starting up, starting to lead a chapter of predominantly white students who didn't mm-hmm. care about race very much um, while also experiencing the racial trauma. And I'm sure you feel this sometimes where like another black person gets killed and it just, you feel it in your body. Yes. Like you, you carry it. And so yes. I was doing yes. a lot of carrying that stuff in my body, Ooh. um, while trying to decolonize this chapter of students who weren't really interested in having the conversations that I was trying to have in a critical moment where it was necessary to have them. Yes, man. That is the truth. I know. Yes. <laughs> he said it about carrying the body. That is the truth. I mean, I can feel it 
you know, my therapist always says, you know, where do you feel it? I mean, it starts in my gut. It moves to my neck and shoulders. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it, you're right. And so engaging with those, because you're right. I mean, cause I know we, you know, I came to school, well, we were starting our, our, our fall semester, um, you know, that we were getting prepared and everything. And I remember coming in our first chapel, there were, you know, a lot of white students who were just like, I don't understand why this is happening. Why are black people so mad? Like <laughs> this guy was attacking his, um, you know, the officer. And so like, this is an open and shut case and stuff. How do you go about engaging in some of those conversations? Cause I know you get them. <laughs> I, know, I know you getting them. So how do you go about engaging some of those conversations? Uh, well, I do it def- differently now than I used to. Oh, okay. All um, right. I, I think I, well, I prefer to have these conversations proactively instead of reactively mm-hmm. because it's pretty hard when Michael Brown is killed and the issue feels controversial to based on, on like it feels controversial along racial lines, right? Black yeah. people believe one thing about it and white people believe another. Yeah. Um, so it's pretty hard to enter into that conversation effectively at that at that point. Yeah. Because um, I remember even like I hosted a vigil on campus um, just to honor black students to say, Hey, we see you. We care for you. Yeah. Um, I did a vigil. We put, we, we prayed for Michael Brown. We, his family, we prayed for Ferguson. And afterward I had a group of white students who hadn't come to my event, sit me down and basically say, Hey, you're going too far. You, Mm. you didn't pray for police at your rally and people in the community think that you hate white people. (laughs) And I was like, okay, I hear that, but can you help me understand why? Like why, why do people feel that way? And they couldn't give me a very concrete answer. And I was like, this isn't necessarily about the vigil. This is about your disengagement with racism and your inability to see both your own racial identity and how it's playing out both in this interaction where there's like three of you talking to one of me about this thing that none of you went to. (laughs) Um, Right. And so and so there was right this entitlement to being right, but no compassion for the death that had happened or for Mm. the pain experiencing. Yeah. And I think it made me realize that without a baseline a baseline level of compassion that most Christians in general are not going to engage with issues of race well. And so if you start with the political oftentimes in these spaces and have never had the relational compassion piece first, the conversation is much harder. And so while that conversation did move forward, it's not my favorite method to be like, here was a racial incident. Now let's talk about it. It's, It's slow inputs over time for me. It's having students, it's having particularly for white students knowing they have an ethnic identity or a racial identity and that has an impact. And there's like, good things about white culture and there's like really jacked up stuff about white culture and white supremacy is real and like them having a black friend doesn't make them not racist you know it's decolonizing those basic things over time so that when someone like michael brown is killed those students can say hey i know i don't understand what's happening but i know that my gut defensiveness or frustration or wanting to get the facts actually isn't enough it doesn't cut it anymore Um, (laughs) yeah and so i'm curious just i mean and this is just my own curiosity as you're talking i mean i'd be curious to know what are some of the, dare I say, I'm, so I'm a researcher, so I got to ask, uh, methods. Yeah. What are some of the procedures you go about in engaging? That? So, so here, I'll give you a little context. So right now it's the fall. We just I'm teaching intercultural communication. That's kind of like one of my bread and butter courses. Um, and it's great because, you know, I have some, some black students. I actually have a Muslim student uh, in there, and she's, she's amazing. She, can't, she keeps us honest. So yesterday um, we had a you know, conversation like how do you live in the space of your of your race, so I, I define the difference between race and ethnicity, blah 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 blah. And how do you live in the space of your race? And so, of course, as one would imagine, ethnic minorities were like, "Oh, this is how I feel." And so, but the majority of white students were like, "I don't, I don't, I don't think about it. I don't. I'm American. I don't. I, I just think 
I just want to treat everybody equal. So how do you go about an engaging? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And when you talk about this decolonization, because I'm with you, but what, what does that look like for you in, in your space, especially on Christian campuses or in, in Christian environments? Yeah. So I, yeah, I think there's a couple of things, but one main thing is that Christians are not easily convinced of like evangelical Christians um, and Christians who have maybe never engaged scripture very thoroughly themselves uh-huh. surprisingly love scripture, um, surprisingly <laughs> care for scripture, even if we don't yeah. know how to read it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I tend to make, try to make a case in the scriptures that this matters. Um, whether it's doing Acts 6 and the Hellenistic widows and the Grecian widows and talking about how people don't see each other well and people don't see each other, it creates conflict in this early church that we so idolize. Yeah. Um, or it's looking at how Jesus crosses barriers with the Samaritan woman or with the Syrophoenician woman. Right, I'm trying to get my get, get women in scripture some attention out here. <laughs> right, uh, right, exactly. Smash the patriarchy and white supremacy <laughs> at the same time. That's <laughs> um, right, that's right. But like doing things like having students read the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 next to each other and ask the question, why do the disciples believe that Jesus can do a thing with 5,000 of their own people, but not with 4,000 people who aren't their own? What's happening for them? What's frustrating for them? What's going on for them? And if I can make a case in scripture that this matters to Jesus, then the sociopolitical conversations become much easier um, because I can say, okay, in the same way that the disciples were really disinterested in seeing Jesus do a miracle for their enemies or for people who weren't like them, what are the ways that our communities choose to mm. want mercy for our own communities, but not for others? So mm. when we see Black Lives Matter, why is it that we have more compassion for uh, a white woman who is a victim of domestic abuse than we do for a black man or a black child, right? I think of that Tamir Rice, whose life is taken from him. Right. And so those conversations are really different when students have a rooting in scripture. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's frustrating that people have to be theologized into compassion, but if that's what I have to do to help people to engage, then I will. And then for my more woke students, <laughs> right, we, we all got to be decolonized. But one of the things that I've been doing this summer with a group of students that I was working with was asking them to identify systems differently. Okay. Um, yeah. So for people who have no knowledge, I start with the individual. I start with, right, especially for white students who have a high value for individualism. I start, I take that value of individualism and then I press it as far as I can to help them to become anti-racist. Um, but in communities who can talk about systems, I always ask them to take an organization, a Christian organization they're a part of, mm-hmm. and I give them this uh, this resource called um, Anti-Racist uh, Multicultural Communities. Okay. It's a scale of one to six that basically says, how anti-racist is your organization? <laughs> and so I ask them, okay, I want you to identify how anti-racist is your organization on the scale of one to six, and then I want you to identify where your organization thinks that it is. Okay. So, right, like a three is like a multicultural community that still tokenizes people. It thinks it's woke, but it's not really. It makes very few systemic changes. And so, like, for the organization I work for, I can say pretty squarely that I think we're a three. Okay. But my organization has a history of doing, of making some good decisions in key times about racial justice issues. So my organization probably thinks that it's, like, at a five. Mm. And so then I have to ask this, then I ask the students the question, okay, as a part of these organizations that think that they're farther along than they are, what are the values that are driving us to maintain our status quo? What are the white supremacist values that play out in our organizations that are causing us to exclude people unintentionally through our programs and systems, whether it's Mm. worship of the written word or perfectionism or hyper-individualism or 
quality over or quantity over quality. You know, like there's just a lot of things. Bigger is bigger is more and better. Yes. So then helping them to identify the values that sit underneath all of that stuff that they're talking about. Yo, that is that is dope. And I'm glad you actually pulled the little handout out um, that you that you that you had given us. I'm, I've been using that. This is this because it's amazing. I mean, to kind of name so some good. of those things. And for those of you uh, listening, I'll, I'll put this all in the show notes. I'll upload it so you, too, can can take a, uh, a look at this. And so it's white supremacy culture from dismantling racism, a workbook for social change and groups. Um, can you talk a little bit of, then about that? Because I think, again, in this era, which I want to get to the, the Trumpster era um, is. We're just seeing more of this, right? Just so, like you said, perfectionism. Uh, what's another one on here? The senses of urgency, <laughs> yeah. you know, defensiveness, um, and then of course, you know, the avoidance of conflict um, with that paternalism. Either or thinking, like what? Yes. <laughs> how does that, how does that play out? Because this is amazing. I love that scale and how that 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 parses itself out. Yeah. Um... I guess it depends on where your community is at. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, to think about this a little bit. That's okay. Think that's good. That's good. I mean, I guess what I'm trying to get at is people obviously in your community know you. How has how has this impacted folks? Because I was bringing this out yesterday, and then you know, one of the white students was like, "Well." But a lot of those are just, you know, in my personality. I like to be on time. I like to be this. I like, so how, yeah. does that make me bad? Does that make me a yeah. racist? Um, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like some of the individual yeah. comments that come out, and especially now. So I don't know if you've, if you watch the, uh, uh, the whiteness project or have you seen any of those uh, online? Oh, um, yes. 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 <laughs> so there's a, there's, so there's, so there's a one brother on there who's talking about like, you know, I don't hate black people, but I don't really like them. And they just, they, they are disturb me and all this stuff. So he's basically saying, I hate black people, but yeah. there is a sense, you know, 53% of white male millennials still believe like they're being discriminated at, at worse at more or or at the same level that ethnic minority people have so how do you how do you begin to even look at that especially in a hyper culture where like oh you offended me how dare you call me a racist yeah um well usually you have to have some relationship to be able to do that um which sucks like i hate in some ways that <laughs> i can't just say the right thing or write the right thing um turns out the jesus kingdom's super relational um, and that people are transformed in relationship to each other. Um, so sometimes I think it takes relationship just to say like, hey, I know that you think that you are just perfectionistic because you're an individual person, but individualism is also a high value in your culture. So let's talk about how other people think about perfectionism. Like what, how do black folks engage with perfectionism? What does that look like? Yeah. What are the barriers between how you see perfectionism and how I see perfectionism and how we're going to have some conflict about that? Um, which is hard because I think that at the, at a baseline for me, having conversations about race and identity has to start from a place of being able to have conversations about conflict, which in a white supremacist culture where conflict isn't valued because facts are valued over actually talking about how we hurt each other. Mm -hmm. It's pretty hard to have a lot of those conversations. And so, yeah, I think in an, <laughs> God. yeah, I think in an era where, <laughs> We would rather see where, or we, I say we as in like dominant culture, I guess, but where dominant culture would rather see people as individuals or individual racists, it scapegoats the system, right? It scapegoats the ability to have conversations about systemic mm -hmm. issues. And so if someone says, well, I'm just this, I'm just that, 
then when we see something like Charlottesville happen, it's really easy to say, well, I didn't do that because I wasn't out there with a tiki torch chanting songs to Robert E. Lee. But what it doesn't say is that, hey, but my body actually isn't in danger when those things happen. My body isn't in danger when, like, I don't see a symbol of enslavement or incarceration or my body being on the line when a Robert E. Lee statue is around. And so I think there's a strong avoidance of the systemic that is masked in the individual. Mm-hmm. So I usually try to help people to see systems at any level. Um, and I found that for Christians, if you can see one type of systemic oppression, whether it's around gender or class or race, that it makes the others easier. Yeah. Race for white men is not, easy, is not usually the easiest place to enter in. Um, so I usually start with gender for those folks. Uh, okay. <laughs> and then move forward an intersectional process. Um, but it takes a long time. And for me, I know that I have a lot of time with my people. I think it's really different when or I could have a lot of time. I tend to have one to four years with people. Yeah. And that's a longer trajectory than like a 45 minute talk somewhere <laughs> right, where I would probably right. strategize really differently and just go for it. Yeah. Because um, at this point in my life, I've pandered to trying to protect white people's feelings for so long that I haven't told the truth. And yeah. I think now mm-hmm. I just have to say, like, no, white supremacy is an issue that we are embedded in that white folks perpetuate just through being complicit with whiteness in whatever way that it does. And it's through taking those values that we ha- that we say exist and making them supreme and over everyone else's that we end up creating a white supremacist state that we cannot identify anymore. Man, <laughs> that's deep. Woo. Reverend Miller, man. Um. All right. So let me fast forward then to that's beautiful. I mean, yeah, I could go so many places with that. All right. So I, let me fast forward to 2016, November. Um, one of the things that sticks out to me in this, this handout is the right to comfort, right? The belief that those with power have a right to emotional and psychological comfort. Another mm-hmm. aspect of valuing um, loci over emotion, right? You know, scapegoating mm-hmm. those who cause discomfort. And I think Connected to that, obviously, is the issue of, quote unquote, immigration, illegal people coming, stealing quote, our jobs and and coming here illegally. So this 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 notion of illegality. I mean, one of the things I have, I'm always like baffled by and just kind of the irony of it is like, so we want to talk about legality. I mean, we have one of the most illegal presidents in, in probably U.S. history, mm-hmm. at least in the last yeah. hundred years. Absolutely. But nobody wants to kind of engage that. And then we have an illegal country. It was stolen from people, brought stolen people to this country. But people don't want to have that, right? People just like, oh, mm-hmm. okay. So November 2016, you know, we're seeing the numbers coming in. Again, I, I tell everybody this tweet. In fact, I was talking about it in another couple of other episodes because it because it, it resonated so much for me, Brandy. When you, when you tweeted, you're like, I was an evangelical or identified as it, but you know, tonight I serve my divorce papers. You can say it much better than I can. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about that, particularly with our religious affiliation? Cause you know, I I mean, I work for an evangelical organization. People look at me kind of cross-eyed when I say, no, I'm not an evangelical. I I don't identify as it. Then what are you? (laughs) You Sure. What is, what is, what does that look like? And, and, and how did you come to that? And what was going on for you around the November election as those numbers were coming in? Yeah. So I think one piece that is really important is that I was not surprised as the numbers were coming in. Um, But I found that most of my white Christian evangelical friends were shocked, um, especially ones that consider themselves woke or liberal, um, which aren't that many. (laughs) But people were really surprised and were like, I was watching like white women crying and mourning. And I was like, I mean, I get it. But like, y'all, this isn't a surprise. I'm going to call my black friends and we're like, oh, 
Like <laughs> JT's the president now. We knew this was going to happen. Like I told you, could have told you that last November or whatever when this was all starting. Right. Um, because Donald Trump is less of a he's a symptom of something that's already been happening. Like he's Donald Trump is not surprising. Like when Christians are so in bed with empire, when we're so interested mm. in maintaining economic, political, and militaristic power in the world, and we back it up with really poor Bible, it's not surprising to me that we would back up someone who is ambiguously identified as Christian, who's militaristic, who is economically invested, and who seeks to defend a certain type of whiteness that we have replicated in our congregations over and over and over again. It's not surprising that we would vote for someone who looks like what our Sundays look like, mm-hmm. um, which is self-centered religiosity that is more centered on patriotism than it is on Jesus oftentimes. Uh, yeah. And so for me, I yeah. think that I had had some hope for evangelicalism. I think I had had hope that um, a strong investment in Bible, a strong investment in people to some degree, um, and the times changing, you know, since 2015, that, that evangelicalism would at some point catch up. Um, but we chose Donald Trump, like evangelicals, evangelicals <laughs> yeah. chose Donald yeah. Trump, we chose someone or they chose someone who is exactly what they wanted. And I was like, if this is the leader that you want, and he says things about me or my friends who are undocumented, like they are illegal or less than people or rapist or not the best. then I was like, this is the kind of church that this person deserves to lead. Donald mm. Trump is the church that he got. He deserves that church and we deserve the leader that we've received because our country is built on the problematic nonsense that he's espousing. And so for me, I think to decide to no longer choose to be evangelical is not that I don't believe in the values of evangelicalism, biblicism and crucicentrism and conversionism and activism. I deeply believe in those. I'm actually probably more truly evangelical than most evangelicals are because I'm guessing most evangelicals couldn't actually tell you what it means to be evangelical, um, (laughs) which is special. Um, (laughs) Yes, it is. But I think, again, it comes back to what I said at the very beginning in some ways that I learned in a day that evangelicals did not care about my body. They only cared about my soul. And as long as it didn't matter if I died, like my body didn't matter. Mm -hmm. Um, And that completely subverts the value of evangelism. Like if you have a value of evangelism and trying to see people convert, but you don't care when people die, you don't care about evangelism. You care about your friends being in heaven with you when you die and creating a homogenous space that looks like you. Then I can't be a part of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, oh, ooh, yes. I mean, and I, and I think, yeah, cause I'm, I'm trying to think back too. I mean, I think you're right. I wasn't, I mean, I called Trump getting elected like in June. I was like, all right, he going, he going to be elected. He going to be the That's one. Right. And so, you know, and a lot of my white liberal friends or progressive friends, however you want to define him, you're like, Oh no, that'll never happen. That can mm-hmm. never happen and stuff. Mm-hmm. And people having all these celebratory parties, you know, first woman president and everything. And so I guess what kind of took me for and, and, and really hit home for me was that I felt like I spent the last 15 years of my career, of my life trying to make a difference quote unquote, in white spaces, you know, Mm -hmm. if we just work a little harder, if we just show them this, if we just cater and pander to, you know, we just say it like this and that, you know, one person can make a difference. One person (laughs) and then looking at those numbers, 81 percent of white evangelicals, you know, uh, voted for this guy, you know. And so for me, it 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 delegitimizes 
any evangelical Christian who says, oh, I'm a Christian, then voted for Trump, it delegitimizes their their position and authority as, as some kind of theologian, theological power. Because I'm like, this person is everything you say you don't want, yet you voted mm-hmm. for them, which makes me think this is much bigger than just politics. This is about race. This is about yes. a white man in power who is able to extend paternalism, hyper-masculinism, you know, all that. I mean, people were like, well, you know, because I remember asking some women, like, well, what did you think about some of his comments? They're like, well, do you talk like that? Have you ever called a woman by that? So I'm like, okay, all right, we're, so we're, you, all right, we're in kind of a justification space of that. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so, um, what now? <laughs> that's, that's a question, right? It's like, what now? Because I know for me, and let me just say this, and I, and I, want, you, I, want, you, I want you to respond. I, I know for me, I have... Like I work with white friends and white allies, but I'm I've given up on trying to go to evangelical spaces. I mean, and even though I know it would bring some more money in, I'm turning down <laughs> events to, you know, to show, oh, can we, you know, can we hear about the racial thing? And I mean, I have a whole thing now in my writing speaking contract. Like, if I'm the only one coming to speak on this, I'm not your person. I can give you references yeah. of people who can come and do that, but I'm not going yeah. to be that black guy that shows up to make <laughs> pe- white people feel guilty and then, oh yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, we're sorry. All the hugging out. And then we yeah. go back to the same thing. Like you said, people, you know, you don't really want to see my own liberation. You just want to feel good about something. So what next? Where, where do we go? What do we do? What do I, <laughs> I'm, I'm asking this stuff. And then I want to talk briefly, too, before after you answer that. Like, what does the theology of violence look like? But yeah. <laughs> this first yes. one first. I wish I knew. Um, I wish I knew what to do. But I think that in some ways, um, evangelicalism as we know it is self-destructing. Yeah. Um, and I think I used to want to save it from itself. And I think I used to want to be like, come on, y'all do better. Like, let's enter into like some yeah. John the Baptist yep. style repentance. Right. <laughs> um, but God's God judges people in scripture all the time through terrible leaders that they choose. Yeah. Like I think about yeah. I think about Saul and like the people want Saul and God's like, it's better when I'm your king. But they're like, no, we want this guy who has a bunch of charisma, who's a really good military leader. Ooh who justifies a lot of what we do economically, who cares about building an empire. Yeah. And God's like, fine, you can have him. But I remember what God says, right, to, to Samuel. Is he's basically like, hey, this guy's going to enslave your people. You're going to go into economic and political ruin. This is going to be terrible. And the people are like, we want him. Like Samuel tells them what God says. <laughs> and the people right. are like, yeah, we want him. And I'm like, evangelicals have just done that. We have just said in some ways, this is who we want. And I think that God is going to use Donald Trump for our judgment. Like, I think the ways that we are seeing mm. relationships, communities fall apart, the ways that the church is dying in a lot of ways in the midst of a Trump presidency, I think in some ways that could fit a biblical frame of judgment. I'm not normally like a, and you know, I'm not normally a judgment kind of person, but I'm yeah, like, yeah. if the shoe fits, I think it's worth considering. Yeah. And so for me, it's asking, how do I develop students in my context mm-hmm. uh, and develop anti-racist students who can resist well? Um, and not create allies, but create like co-laborers or, or something, co-conspirators, because allyship is tired. I'm so over developing allies because allies, for me, do minimal <laughs> work, get a lot of credit, but then never necessarily deal with their own white supremacy in a significant way that makes me think that you're actually down for my liberation. <laughs> allies are on the boat until it sinks and they jump in a lifeboat when it's too hard. Not wow. interested. Wow. That's not, that's part of what I even like what Greg Tate writes about everything but the burden, you know, it's like, you know, we going, we going, we going to rape your culture. We going to, you know, I think one of the the scenes that stood out to me 
after Mike Brown and after Ferguson and then after all the things that had happened after that. I remember I was at this youth camp. It was this evangelical youth camp. It was, it was, it was like 5,000 like majority white kids. And Lecrae was giving a concert, right? This is, I mean, and, and Lecrae, that's a whole other conversation, <laughs> Lecrae. Um, but I think, you know, I think he's coming into his wokeness anyway. But he, you know, I was interesting. I just got through having a conversation with a white youth pastor who said, the way those thugs learn is with two forty-five slugs to the chest. That this is a youth pastor. Whoa! That's he said. The way they learn is two forty-five slugs to the chest. Let God judge them. So this, this is a youth pastor. This is this yeah. Is, but then I'm in this concert. I'm looking at Lecrae. If you, I, I don't know if you've ever been to one of his concerts before. Um, He's, you know, he's a great performer. I mean, he's, I mean, he must lose at least five pounds just, you know, on being on stage. And so he's up there. I mean, these white kids are going crazy for him. You'd have thought, you know, Jesus's cousin was up there and stuff, man. They yeah. were just going nuts. And it hit me like, wow. So it's like on Do the Right Thing when, when Spike is having that conversation, like, you know, they're more than niggas. They're not, they're not niggas. They're, they're, it's more, they're more than black and stuff. It's like, so yeah. I love your culture. I want to emulate it. I want to wear it. I want to embrace it. But when mm -hmm. it comes to your actual existence, I don't want to have a damn thing to do with it. Yep. Yep. It is fine being in a relationship with people until it's costly. <laughs> right. If it takes your money, if it takes, if it even, if it takes the illusion of your money, like I think about even DACA right now and the rescinding of DACA, I'm like, yes, DACA benefits our country economically in profound yes. ways. Yes. And people who yes. voted for Donald Trump will say like, we're about the economy. It's about the economy. It's about him being a leader. But then he rescinds DACA and we know that it's about race. Like we know that it's not about the economy. And so when I think about Christians in the same way, I'm like, well, when it comes down to it, like you want to be, you say that you're about evangelism, you say that you're about loving compassion, but when it comes to a black body, really what you want is to consume what makes you look good. So to say you went to a Lecrae concert or have had a black friend or yeah. to have listened to, yeah. you know, a non-white person, listen to a Robbie Zacharias talk or a Francis, <laughs> Chan, read a Francis Chan article, and I can right. say plenty about that. But like when it comes down to, yeah, caring about my body existing or mattering in any way, there's nothing. Mm. I, so here's the thing. So one of the things I've been working on just as now that I got tenure, I don't have to like spend time writing. All these, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I, I was like, somebody was just like, Oh, you got time to meet today. I was like, yeah, I ain't got to go to like six different conferences and show up to every freaking committee faculty meeting and, you know, and do the dance. So one of the things I've been working on and putting together, and hopefully this will turn into something, um, you know, in, in print. That's that's I, I like writing, um, so I, it's a it's a good way of getting things out. Is this theology around what is our understanding of violence? What are what is our and, and even violence maybe even too much or too much of a word, but what is what does armed resistance look like in a yeah. theological concept? And I guess I ask this and, uh, yeah, simply because. Charlottesville, I think, brought some of this stuff up, right? So I don't know if you heard uh, uh, the, the mayor of Charlottesville come out and, you know, he was talking about how there were you know, stockpiles and bunkers of stuff that they were finding all around the city of weaponry. And, and it's like, I don't have to know military philosophy and theory to know that this was, it felt like a test run. Like, we're going to go test this out. We're going to see what the response is and to judge what we need to come back with. So I, and the amount of people that I've heard, both either in person, on the radio or on television, that said, 
you know, if Hillary is elected, we are going to take this country back by force. Mm -hmm. Um, And just the amount of hate that exists, particularly for black bodies. I'm wondering what is our response? Because I'll be honest, Brandy. I'm not in a position anymore to talk about let's go reconcile right i don't <laughs> yeah the the jews were not reconciled to the nazis in world war ii you there was no sitting down with them and talking with them love didn't win that war no love didn't win the civil war love yeah. love didn't you know love, love oh love conquers all so what might that look like because i ain't gonna front i am in the process right now of exercising my second amendment right and yeah. uh you know and i'm you know and i'm serious about it. i don't people like, oh no i'm serious we're, we're an open and carry uh state so i'm i'm taking advantage of that because i i see i see some of the things that are going out there and almost every ethnic minority that i've talked with who, who's woke however you want to define it has said i feel a shift since Trump came into this of violence towards me. And I don't necessarily know what to do with that, especially as Christians. So I don't know that I'll just say that. What are your thoughts on some of that stuff? And again, I'm not trying to push you anyway. You can totally disagree. I'm just, but I'd love to hear what you think. Yeah. Well, so I think there's two pieces that feel really challenging to me. One is that I, when I look at the person of Jesus, who I say I follow, I see a pretty radical type of Mm -hmm. um, nonviolence that is, um, yeah, pretty astounding. Um, and in a lot of ways, like in most cultural contexts and in most situations feels kind of dumb. And so part of me, like deep in me is like, yeah, like this, this nonviolence is the way of Jesus. And I think we have to talk, we have to talk about the difference between force and violence. Okay. Um, cause I think violence, right. Is like someone doing something that is like evil or wrong because they're going to do it. So I think of Charlottesville as an act of violence. Like people are doing violence. Force is yeah. responding to violence so that you prevent harm against yourself or against another person. Okay. And so, so I am, I think I am anti-violence still, but I am not necessarily anti-force. Um, so, right. I think it's in the, like I, when I think about the most extreme examples, I think about hyper conservative people who are like gun born, gun bred, gun, you know, <laughs> yeah, owner right. till I'm dead kind of folks right. who, who say things like, Oh, someone broke into my house and tried to kill my children. I should be able to defend myself. And part of me is like, okay, I don't know that I would in my current ideology around nonviolence, mm-hmm. but I can see where that would be a thing that one could do in good conscience. Um, so I think there's this like whole Jesus-y nonviolence. There's this whole like the entire book of Revelation is basically about how God wins through a sacrificed lamb. You know, it's like there's some pretty significant <laughs> yeah. biblical reasons to sit in a pattern of nonviolence. Yeah. Um, but the other the other story I've been sitting in lately has been the book of Esther. Okay. Um, and Esther is profoundly shaping my theology around violence and politics right now. Because mm. um, right in Esther, we have this situation where Haman decides that he hates the Jews so much he's going to do something about it. He's going to create an edict that is going to massacre an entire group of people. He's going to he's going to create a genocide. And right through a series of strange beauty pageants and awkward, like weird, like sexual encounters and things, <laughs> Esther gets in with the king. Yeah. Um, And Esther, at a certain point, after hiding her ethnic identity for a while, says, like, hey, you know Haman's trying to kill all my people, right? Like, she uses, she speaks truth to power in this really vulnerable way that could cost her her life, which, you know, props to her for that. But I think that we miss in this, the thing that we miss in the story is that when she asks the king to do this thing, he's like, hey, in my political power, I can't do anything about this specifically. Like, I can't rescind Mm -hmm. the edict to kill all of the Jews on this particular day because that's not how our politics work. But what he tells her is, okay, how about you write another law, like write an edict to this edict that says that the Jews can defend themselves yeah. 
if someone comes comes after them. Because right in Haman's edict, the people have to choose to go and find the Jews to kill them. And so what Esther does is she creates a political policy that says that when someone uses violence against you, you can use force in return to defend yourself and your people. Mm. And so I have to think about that. I have to, I have to consider like that when, and when that happens, it says that the Jews were filled with light and joy and honor and gladness. And that like when the people, when Haman's people come to slaughter people in what is the equivalent to like a racialized attack on a minority group of people in Persia that they get to defend themselves. And when they do, Mm. it creates a system where God's people actually thrive. So I don't know what to do. I don't know what this looks like, but I do know that in the scriptures we have both extreme nonviolence from Jesus, but then also forced use to defend innocent life. Mm. And I don't know what to do with that tension yet, but I do know that they're both in the scriptures and that I can in good conscience hold both of those things in my mind, even not knowing what I'm going to do myself. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Woo. That's a lot to process. There's a lot <laughs> to think a on. A lot in there. Oh my gosh. This is this has been amazing. Um you know, I, I like I said, I know you're busy. I know you got all kind of things. What are some new things that you're working on now? What are some what's uh, what's next for Brandy Miller? Yeah, so right now I'm getting ready to start a new school year, so my time is a little bit less free. Um but I would love to start moving toward writing a book here pretty soon. Um, I think I'm learning yeah, yeah, yeah. how to dismantle white supremacy in our hermeneutics. Yes. Um, but in a way more accessible way. Um, I, I have a dream of <laughs> writing a book called Why Does God Choose Assholes to Be Kings and Other Questions You Should Ask About Scripture. Oh, oh, um, so, so helping people to ask better questions about the text that lead them to more responsible sociopolitical engagement. Um, that'll probably be a while down the line, but right now I'm doing a lot of blog writing and a lot of yeah. like being on podcasts and speaking and teaching folks and doing trainings that helps me to be able to have the content, not just the content ideologically, but the experience on the ground to write a book like that with integrity. Yeah, no, abs- no, absolutely. Absolutely. And we, and we should talk. I mean, I mean, I've told you that before, but yeah, I would, that title would be perfect for the, 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 the line that I work at it with, uh, at Fortress Press Theology of the People. So that would be beautiful to fit in there. That's awesome. Love to do something like that. Love Fortress. Yeah, that's great. And so for the folks who are listening, how do they get in contact with you? Where, where are you at on the, on the world wide web? Yeah, yeah. So I have a website called stirringupholymischief.com um, that has most of my writing archived on there. Um, but the easiest place to find, get in touch with me and engage with me is on Twitter. Um, my Twitter <laughs> handle is Brandy Nico, B-R-A-N-D-I-N-I-C-O. That's what's up. That is what's up. And for those of you listening, again, I'll put all these in the show notes so you can click on that uh, on the website, White Hodge Podcasts, and just click on Profane Faith, and this should be the episode. We're also on iTunes and Stitcher and Google and all those lovely places, wherever you find your podcasts at. Like us, stream us, and most of all, if you like us, tell a friend. Tell a friend, you know, subscribe. That's good stuff. Brandy, thank you so much for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, yeah, it's a lot to cover there, isn't it? Um, man, where do we, where do we, where do we go? Where do we go? Uh, I, I told you, I told you she was deep. I told you. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, okay, all right. So, speaking theologically, speaking from a position, I think just culturally, um. Christianity has tried to place a 
Western Christianity, excuse me, is has been more of a position of let's keep the peace, right? Especially, especially for ethnic minorities, especially for those involved with the oppressive heel um, of whiteness and white supremacy on them. And so it's just funny, right? When you start to think about it, it's like, okay, so what does that mean then? Do I not use violence as a, as a method of change? Because the country as a whole has used that. And so I know a few of you are probably thinking, whoa, 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 what is this about? Now look, I'm not saying grab your gun, go out and start shooting people. I'm not saying that. So please don't interpret that because I know that's the first thing people hear. That is not what I'm saying. I am saying, however, that just like Sister Miller was just talking about, what does that mean then when I'm threatened, when the enemy is at the gate, how do I defend myself in that situation? I'm not saying let's go hunting. I don't want to go hunting for white people. I'm not trying to kill anyone. But what does it look like in, in the current situation that we're in right now? What does it look like to be reconciled, right? I'm going to do a whole series on, on a, whole, a whole episode on, on reconciliation, man, because I got, I got some thoughts on that. But what does that mean to be reconciled to somebody who hates my very existence and being? I want us to think about that for a little bit. So it, 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 it challenges me. And like I said, I'm still wrestling through this. I'm still working with through this. You'll probably hear some episodes and, you know, hopefully we can look back on this and be like, wow, that was a really rough time we were in in that season. Hopefully, hopefully we don't, you know, get all blown to smithereens and whatnot. Um, but I do think we're in a pretty precarious area. And I do encourage you all to really think through where does, you know, where does your own theological space is at in this? And, you know, if you have the privilege to not think about it, like maybe this is brand new to you. Maybe you're just like, wow, this is, I, I never had to think about it like that. Damn right. Didn't recognize that privilege. Because for those of us who are on the other end of it, I always have to think about it. Every single time I go out the door, I have to think, is this going to be my last time? Am I going to run into it? Is today the day that I end up on national news because some white dude or, or a white person group didn't like the way my, 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 my head was shaved or the way that, um, you know, I said something or looked at them? I mean, those are the things I think about. And I know those of you who come from oppressed, you know, groups, you know, women, you have to think about, you know, if, if I walk into a dark alley or I have to walk into a dark parking lot, you know, is, is somebody waiting for me there? These are the things, right? And as a man, relatively speaking, I have some privilege as a man because I don't think about that. I think it's important that we do think about those things and then not just think about it, right? Just for the, for the sake of thinking, but to actually begin to think, where do I fit into this cog? Where do I fit into this wheel? And then what are the action steps I need to move forward? Now, I'm not saying let's just hop to action. I think it's important to sit in lament. I think it's important to sit in tension. I think it's important to sit in that mess because we're too quick to jump to solutions when we really haven't figured out the entire complexity of the problem. You feel me? We haven't even thought through what some of the venereal issues, right? Of racism, sexism, paternalism, all those things that exist within Christianity. Now, historically, right? I mean, I, I love the faith of Christianity, but I, I am not coming at it from a Western perspective, but that's taking years of decolonizing and I'm still decolonizing my mind. And I think that's what Brandy is trying to push us towards. And so I thank her for that. What do y'all think? Huh? What's going on for you? 
subscribe, listen, put a comment. Uh, we're at whitehodgepodcast.com. We're on iTunes, Google, or on Stitcher. So check us out. Subscribe. The best thing you can do for us right now is subscribe, listen, tell a friend. Tell a friend about Profane Faith. Tell somebody that this is a great thing. If you love it, if you liking what you're hearing, go out and tell some other people. That would be very helpful. We're on Facebook, uh, whitehodgepodcasts.com. More uh, material is coming. I got some amazing people lined up uh, to have interviews with. And I also got a future podcast coming. We're going to be looking at God as an extraterrestrial, as an alien. What, what, what do we think about God in that sense? What if God is just an advanced species, right? And it's taking God this long to get back because of the laws of relativity, right? What if God had to go through a black hole? And for God, it was like, shoot, you know, 10 minutes. But for us, it's been like 2,000 years. <laughs> yeah, be on the lookout for that episode. Thanks so much for listening, y'all. Yeah, good stuff. Peace.